Welcome to Get Your Voice Heard podcast, the official BNB podcast with me, your host, Derv. Special guest today and a very familiar voice to those of the paddock, none other than the legend himself, Chris Kazura. How are you? Good, thanks, Derv. Nice to speak to you. And you. And to be called a legend, it's got, it's got to feel good, right? Uh, oh, that's an exaggeration, I think, but uh, it's, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> So, for those that do know you, obviously you are the voice of the BNB um, live stream, and you have been for a couple of years now. Yeah, I've done it. Um, I think full time, I'd say I've done it for about two or three years now. But I've been involved as a commentator on some of the highlights for uh, a good four or five seasons. Exactly, but people who are fairly new to British mini bikes, I've been doing it three years. Want to know more about you? What? Who? Who is this voice, and what does he do, and where does he come from? From so, I've I've kind of dragged you in to say, look, let's let's let people know what you're all about, because at some point in time, you're going to be having to go on one of our bikes. So it'd be good for people to know your background and, and where you come from. Um, so I thought I'd start off with a couple of questions just to get you warmed up. Do you know? what your last picture was posted on Facebook? Uh, I think it was actually a Henry Hoover that I bought on a local uh, Facebook ad. I've been really pleased because we've been after one for a while. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they're the best vacuum cleaner for doing out the cars. So uh, I was kind of unnaturally chuffed about getting a second-hand vacuum cleaner. <laughs> okay. And can you do you know what your first ever picture was on Facebook? Um. It was probably me going over a jump at Condo on my motocross bike or something back in the, the racing days, I think. It was 2007. Do you know the make of bike? Oh, can you answer that one? A Yamaha YZ250. There you go. So, yeah, you say you know your social media, so that's fine. And out of 3,000 photos, that's a pretty good guess. So, I'll take that. I'll take you back. 2007, was that early days of you on your bike experience? When, when did you start? Um, I started racing about 99, around the time when I finished school. Um, I've always messed around with bikes. I come from a, a motocross family. And my dad used to race at uh, amateur British Championship level. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, when they were, when I was small, they bought me a Suzuki LT50 quad. And I used to mess around on that. And I think that's when my commentating started, because I had this habit of um, like riding around and talking to myself and commentating <laughs> on my riding. Right, okay. So I think that's where it all pinpointed back to. Uh, I used to mess around with motocross bikes when I was younger. And then I think when I was a bit older, about 15, 16, started to get properly into racing. Right. And and from is is talking to yourself when you're riding something you still do when you ride? Because I know from I know there's a lot of people that will listen to this who ride British mini bikes or other riding who talk themselves around laps and give themselves motivational talk when they're riding. Is that something you still do now or? Um, not particularly. I think sometimes you'll perhaps give yourself a bit of a, a pep talk maybe and maybe speak to yourself when you're going around, but uh, I would I'd call it uh, quite short of commentating on myself anyway. <laughs> so so you've obviously been, obviously you rode, uh, started off riding motocross. What is it about motocross that you enjoy? Um, I think one of the things with motocross is the, it changes as the, the session goes on, as the race day goes on. Um, especially I quite like sand tracks because when you start at the beginning of the day it's a really smooth track 
and it's like riding on the M1. But after a few bikes have been out on the course, it gets really tough and really gnarly. Yeah. And the lines change throughout the day and sometimes lap by lap. And it's it's a good challenge to um, try and get a good line and get yourself around the track as swiftly as possible. And, and do you find that with the, the changing conditions, are the tracks always evolving and you're always having to adapt your your style, your approach to to racing? Do you think that's... Um, you see a lot of young lads now who do British mini bikes who are jumping onto motocross bikes. Do you think it's something that would help help them what what skills would you be learning it's obviously a very different style of riding motocross um i think the principles there because if you can imagine for example take wilton mill as an example because that can change very quickly because the slippery i mean everyone calls it slippery mill that means the uh um if you can imagine what it's like there just use an example the um the course can change very quickly yeah um good example perhaps the uh, the last round in 2021 last year when there was the floods all over the track that's right yeah um what it could do i think with motocross it would make you very switched on to um how the track's changing lap by lap so you've got that dry racing line yeah and you've got the elements say for example at christmas corner you've got the off camber section that's right yeah uh you could learn to look at the track and look at it as a whole rather than riding around like a scale extra set for example just change your lines and look at things that might work for you yeah and that, that um, particular track itself was that weekend was challenging i've just spent more time i think commentating than actually riding that weekend mm-hmm. but um you know the, the changeable wet conditions it was one, one at one point it was a, a river and next thing we were, we were racing changing tires every five seconds it was it's quite demanding um so for you as a commentator as well, it obviously it was quite a long day. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, um, I remember when you were coming down to commentate, I told you not to bother because we were flooded in in the commentary booth, basically, and all the offices were surrounded by sandbags because all yeah. the water drained off the track through the paddock and right outside our door. So we got it firsthand, really. But um, yeah, that one changed throughout the day, really. And like a few rounds, you see riders perhaps gambling on changing the tyre compounds or perhaps going to, to slick tyres where they think they might to be able to make it work um one of the things i think with motocross you can carry over as well as an example is you see a lot of riders who are switched on watching the racing when they're uh, when they're not out on track themselves you want to watch perhaps some of the top guys see how they're coping with the track and take ideas from that and apply it to your own riding yeah and and there's a there's quite a big variation of skills and ages um at British mini bikes, and generally, I think that the the school of thought of being able to watch and to learn, um, or just you know, some people go watch, learn, develop, and are really pushing the technical aspect of trying to grow and develop. Whereas some are just happy to turn up, stick the tires on, and off they go, and it'll be what it'll be. There's, is is that similar to motocross? You get you get all 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 sorts kind of make make it what it is kind of thing. I think you're right, yeah, in a sense. it's, um, And I think it's important to stress as well that neither approach is wrong. Um, one of the things when you look, for example, at the um, the MLAB Academy, for example, you've got the, perhaps what you might call the next generation who are perhaps looking to make something of their riding career. That's right, yeah. And that's very much switched on towards like training and development, both on and off the bike. But on yeah. the flip side, there's a lot of people in the nicest sense that they're not going to have the talent to ever get to that level. But that's not to say that their racing is any less important than the guys who are pushing at the front, for example. 
Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's it's a hobby at the end of the day for most people. And um, what the mini bike series does, I think the British mini bikes is it caters for all. Uh, there's a very big and a very public push towards like the next generation, as it were, and training and development. And yeah. obviously a lot of the manufacturers are involved nowadays. So you've got that real push on that side. But so what it also does as well is for your weekend warrior, so to speak, you get a lot of track time. Uh, it does seem a good friendly atmosphere in the paddock. Everyone's willing to pitch in and help out. Yeah. And even if you've got no aspirations to take it to the next level, as it were, I think it's a, it's a great series in itself to to go around the country and enjoy for what it is. Yeah, I think you touched on a, co- a couple of things there. So obviously, firstly, the, the training and the a- academy route. So there's obviously the academy, the Vision Track Academy, um, which is hopefully trying to drive, I suppose, awareness that you know kids at a young age um, financially it's tough and any any type of support that they can get and it's not financial it's more around the coaching the dedication the tools and the tricks to to perform at the highest level if, if they want to take it that way is available and made accessible to to people and then outside of that you've also got you know other people like Andy Ibbert who does rider coaching Ty Kinton Charlie Hall you know, who are rider coaches who can come around to BNB and and be present and give support. And then you've also got experienced riders, you know, the Ryan Ties of the world, the Dickos of the world, who offer support and give advice. So this, I, th- I think you're right. I think there's huge opportunity for people. And some people are there and they want to give back. It's just tapping into it, I think, is it can be challenging at times. But definitely the BNB offers that, which is which is a great platform. I think so. And I think another interesting little side aspect of the BMB is you get a lot of guys such as Pete Hickman, for example, is the most notable one where you get lots of pro riders and because they love racing so much, they'll come along and wildcard an event on their day off. So you've got them coming in to like an, an environment where you've got amateur riders, but it's their, their specialities, you might say, mini bike racing. Yeah. And they're getting the chance to, to race and sometimes beat the the top pro riders. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely. look at, um, say, one or two, especially the youth riders, they've got the advantage of the, the lighter weights. You've got your better power-to-weight ratio, and they can take it to uh, to like a pro rider, like, for example, Pete Hickman. And I think that must be some good bragging, I say, beating around a track. Yeah, Pete, I mean, Pete Hickman, obviously, involved in the Avalis. You've also got people like the OMG rider, Kyle Ride, who, who makes an appearance at times as well. Dan Linfoot in the past has made many appearances. So, you know, it, it's good, and there's a lot of junior BSB riders that have come through BNB and other championships that use the BNB as a platform for training and competing as well. So um, you look at people like Chloe Jones, um, who's, who's one I've worked with before, Luca Allen, Reese Stevenson now gone on to British Talent Cup, Harley McCabe going on to British Talent Cup, um, Daniel Goodman going on to British Talent Cup. So there's plenty of... The, the, the connection to the higher level is starting to get closer and i think um i think that's something that's fairly unique to bike racing i mean going back to motocross as an example um i've been to lommel in belgium before yeah and that's the the venue for the belgian grand prix but it's also a practice track and it's it's a very strange place to go on your holidays because it's tucked around the back of an industrial estate some (laughs) random town in belgium but you'll turn up there in the week and that's like the hub of all the the grand prix teams a lot of them have their bases at lommel or in the local area yeah. And they'll be training there week in, week out. So you'll go on there for a riding holiday and you'll have some world champion going past you. And yeah. I was talking about this to a friend of mine. It's a bit like that in sort of like BMX and mountain biking as well. It's 
if you're a footballer, for example, you couldn't turn up to Man United's training ground at Carrington or whatever, and you, you couldn't go training with Ronaldo or so forth. No. And I think it's a bit of a unique thing with motorcycle racing is the pros, I think, sometimes seem an absolute world away. But at the same time, you can quite feasibly be on the same track as them as well. Yeah, they're, they're accessible. They're, the more accessible, sometimes by look, but, you know, it's not to say that you couldn't go to Cartagena and be riding around the same track as Scott Redding, for example, or someone like that. And the, the other thing as well, I think, is a lot of these top guys that turn up there, um, they're not in an ivory tower, right? They're always keen to, to help out amateurs or youth riders to give them assistance and advice and help bring them on. Yeah, exactly. I agree. And and from your perspective, when you were doing motocross, was there any famous motocross racers that you met or competed against? Um, I think on the commentating side, it brought me or brings me into um, contact with a lot of people in the pro side of things. Yeah. I spent a couple of seasons commentating on the British Motocross Championship. So um, by its nature, you'd be speaking to a lot of pro riders. And I've also interviewed Jeffrey Hurlings in the past. He's the MXGP world champion. Yeah, perhaps one of the world's most famous riders and one of the things that struck me to use Hurlings as an example is how well drilled he was he's a, a Red Bull athlete with KTM Yeah, and I think I've interviewed him twice in the past for various programs and stuff and I must have been like the millionth person to have interviewed him but he was very switched on very professional he, he kind of answers the same questions over and over again I'd imagine but he does it as if you were the first person to ask it. it'll give a good account of himself a good interview and then when it's all finished it's all wrapped up we're all done now and off he goes to the next one so it's that media training which i think is very strong and one thing i've noticed bringing it back to the mini bikes as well is um how well a lot of these young riders are being drilled and told how to communicate and thank the sponsors thank their parents for example yeah and they can give a good account of themselves they can tell uh, tell you how the qualifying went for example how the race went uh we've done the grid walks and they they're very a lot of the ones who are quite used to it now, they're getting very confident in saying how their race is going to go and what their thoughts are. And again, afterwards as well, it can give you a good account of how things went. And that's a good skill to learn for the future, right? So if they if they are going on, sponsorship being so important now, especially with the cost of big bike racing, you know, they, they need to be able to articulate who who's doing what for them and how in a professional way. That's the thing. I mean, any sort of motorsport or motorcycle racing, it, it's going to be expensive. It's the, there's no way of getting out of it, really. And essentially, unless you're really fortunate, you're going to be relying on sponsors and teams to get you through your career. Yeah. So it's a two-way street, really. I mean, these sponsors, they've got to be able to um, see you as a representative of their company or their brand. So if you can, um, if you can articulate yourself well in interviews and be confident in interviews, it all bodes well. Did you, um, obviously you've been doing commentary for quite a while now and you obviously, it crossed over with your riding with motocross. Did you find, like I found, that actually you, because you interview so many, you, in your case, professional motocross riders, etc. you were always learning and applying and it actually brought your riding on or not? A little bit. I mean, when I started commentating, it was at local events. Um, so I've kind of gone over the whole spectrum of things, really. Uh, when I first picked up the mic, I was part of the Shrewsbury Motocross Club. Yeah. And essentially, we were part of an organization called the AMCA. We have um, riders basically organizing the race meetings. Yeah. So you'd have about seven or eight clubs in a group. You'd go off to do their meetings and they'd come to you. So uh, 
no one wanted to be the announcer, so I just picked up the mic one day and had a go. It seemed to go well from there. And sometimes I do podium interviews with the riders who weren't really into it, really. So um, it's kind of a skill trying to extract information from some people because it's not really their thing. And of course, at an amateur level, it's not the sort of thing you'd be expected to do, really. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but when you meet the top riders, it's um, it's a different world when you go to like a top end event. Another event that I also commentate on is the uh, Bridgestone British Masters. Yeah. Which is kind of like a top pro-am motocross series. And you get quite a lot of really good amateur riders there and some pros there as well. And it's great to watch them, how they deal with the track and how they cope with the conditions as the day goes on. And one thing that's interesting with that as well is to have um, amateur racing on the Saturday only and then amateurs and pros on the Sunday. And the pros yeah. are the first on the track. So it's quite often you'll find because they're using wider lines in different ways around the track, that the course rides very differently on the Sunday, for example, as it does on the Saturday. Which takes you back to that track evolution thing. Yeah, I think so. It's, um, I think it's an important thing, especially with the mini bikes, to uh, to read the track and see what's going on, really. And you'll see that the more skilled riders will manage to apply that into their riding and be able to cope with things. Because I mean, the other one I think that uh, springs to mind is Rara weather. It's one of those parts of the country where the uh, the weather can change on a sixpence, really. And you'll <laughs> yeah. go from dry one minute and a monsoon the next. Which it was this year. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. most definitely. Um, so, so obviously, you've, you, loads of experience. Commentary is obviously you, you're second nature to that now. And then you started doing it at <clears throat> British Mini Bikes. What was the challenges you found from doing it at British Mini Bikes to motocross? It's um, obviously it's the same sport because you've got two wheels, but it's a different um, different context really. Uh, the tricky part with the mini bikes was I kind of came into it watching it on the TV screen. Yeah. Um, with commentating, you tend to get gigs and get jobs by networking and knowing people. And um, I came to know a guy called Paul Minahane who ran Blood, Sweat and Gears. Right. And they used to broadcast shows on channels like Motors TV. So they'd go along to the meeting, film the highlights. I'd come in at the studio level and commentate on the highlights. And um, then it'd be broadcast. Yeah. So it was it was a great experience, but it was something that I didn't really get the uh, the full flavour about it until I started going live to the meetings. Yeah. Uh, one of the key things, of course, is that they're very different tracks. Uh, one of the uh, things with the tracks is you've got a real variety. So take, for example, somewhere like Three Sisters or Pembry. It's very flat and very open for most of the lap, and you've got uh, such things as slipstreaming and the tactics coming into it. That's a bit different uh, to motocross, I'd say. Uh, then the other thing of course um, tracks like Red Lodge are really tight and technical so again you've got that uh, different aspect of the sport as well so um, yeah it was um, it's a bit harder to get into initially because it's a different thing to what I'm used to but um, I must say I do enjoy it and one of the best things nowadays is coming along to the meetings as well and being there firsthand. yeah and, and people have started to recognise you as well right so you know you, you can walk around the paddock and people not know who you are um, you know, and I, I, from from my perspective, obviously dabbling with you in the booth, it's really hard. Like, I can't tell people how hard it is. It's so <laughs> it's, you make it sound so easy, but it's not. You, in some cases, you can't even see the track. You're watching it on the TV, so there's no reaction time or anything. It, it's so tough. 
Yeah, it's um, the thing is, it's I always think that commentating, for example, for a TV program or a live stream can be very different to commentating live at the track. Uh, when you're commentating at the track, for example, you're on a commentary booth in a prominent place. You can see the whole track. Yeah. And you're very much a, a public figure. People see you and know who you are. Yeah. And sometimes I think you're commentating maybe about 50% of the people are actively listening to it. And for the other 50%, it's more like background noise as part of the atmosphere. Yes. I think commentating for, for example, with Alpha Live for a streaming service, it can be a bit different because people are more reliant on you to convey the action. And like you say, one of the aspects there is quite often you can't see the track because you'll need to work with the, the production guys in the studio. They'll need to be set up so they can work. So um, you might be in a broom cupboard somewhere around the back or where you maybe see one corner, if, if anything. So you're wholly reliant on what you see, what the director's showing you on the TV screen. Yeah. Which... And the worst part of that is that is generally true. So for those who don't know, Wilton Mill, we were facing away from the track in the room with the door shut, looking at a screen with a wasp. On the oh, that was, uh, that was a moment, wasn't it? Yeah, the wasp. <laughs> Um, and, um, it was in October as well when wasps tend to be more aggressive. Uh, sweating is not is not the <laughs> word, but um, we, we were in there, and you know, watching watching you work, Chris. Obviously, you're you're learning all the names, all the people, the dynamics of the track, but nothing's happening because it's rained and we're under red flag, and you're. I think they call it padding. How how challenging is that on a sport where you're still learning as well? It, it can be difficult sometimes and I think one of the um, one of the great things is following the series and gaining experience about it so you know a bit more what to talk about yeah uh, it can be high pressure because then you've also got the social media stream on the right hand side of the screen you'll get clever comments of oh we're looking at a puddle for 15 minutes <laughs> we can't do much else really Um it's um, there's things you can do. I mean, for example, with using Wilton Mill as that example, because we had all the floods on the track. Yeah, you can perhaps take people onto the track and try and explain to them what the problems are with the circuit. And the good thing as well is it's the last round of the championships. There's a lot of context going into the meeting as well. Yeah, um, it can be difficult though when there's not much going on the track. And sometimes, I mean, we don't like to talk about this, but if there's an injury, for example, it may be more appropriate to terminate the broadcast and come back a bit later. Yeah, exactly. But it's, uh, it's knowing that uh, knowing that part of when to carry on and when to stop, for example. But, um, yeah, it's um, this is where having two people was very useful last year as well because if there's a bit of downtime, is we can have yourself or whoever's guesting on the mic to explain from a rider's perspective what they think of the day as well. And uh, and I noticed one, one of the funniest moments for me uh, whilst being in there with you is you asked me, I can't remember the question. I just remember it being a challenge. And I was like, well, that's a good question. And then you put yourself on mute and at your dinner. And I was like, oh, I think he wants me to give a long answer here because he's, <laughs> he's trying to get some food in. So, you know, it, you literally are talking nonstop for the whole six hours with little chance to eat, little chance to take a breath, trying to keep up with all the, all the, Things that are materialising, whether it's weather, accidents, race results. Um, what would you say from a commentary perspective? So not necessarily BMB, but just in general commentary. What do you, would you say is the hardest thing to do? Uh, 
I think there's two things, I'd say, and one of them is quite particular to the streaming service. Yeah. Um, the first one, I think, is trying to, especially at an amateur level, make sure everyone gets a shout out. Yeah. Um, I say that on the streaming service because you're very much reliant on what you're seeing on the screen. Yes. Because the, the director needs to produce a good show. So you might be effectively ignoring the leader for about three or four laps and people are there going, oh, what's the commentator watching here? Uh, because there's no real action. That's right. Yeah. And the, the director's focusing perhaps on a battle for sixth or seventh place. Uh, the other thing to remember as well is there might be 25 people in that race. And usually, of course, the nature of a broadcast is focusing on the top few guys, but it's trying to try and be as inclusive as possible because for everyone, uh, they've all paid the same money and they're all the race is just as important to them as well. Yeah. And it's it's very difficult to to get that right sometimes to try not to ignore people. And uh, I must say it's it's not always the perfect job either because sometimes you might neglect some of the mid pack or back of the field guys as well. So yeah. it's just trying to be as inclusive as possible. Uh, the second part we touched on a few moments ago is it's a part of the sport where you don't really want to talk about it, but it is part of the sport is injuries. Yeah. Um to use BNB as an example, if there's an accident on the track, uh, the Alpha Live team, they won't broadcast the accident because, of course, people's friends or family might be watching. But um, they keep a camera on that so you can see what's going on. But obviously, out of decency, they won't broadcast that out. Yeah. And it's trying to find the right balance there. It's not just, um, not just on a live broadcast, but if you're at an event where you're live at the track and... You can't go in there going, oh, this is a terrible accident. It could be really badly hurt because you can't say that. No, no. It's something if you're watching it from a distance, you've you've got no sort of right to speculate on that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Then on the flip side, you can't say, well, I'm sure he's winded. He'll be right in a few moments. Yeah. And you've got to be very aware as well, especially on the broadcast that people's friends or family might be watching. So uh, the one thing as well is not to give the writer's name out until you can definitely be confirmed who it is. Do you ever, um, do you ever in your head think that, that once it's out, it's out? You know, once it's li- it's live, it's live. You know, um, I find myself when I, especially the first time I did it, I felt like I was talking like a robot because I was trying to check that I didn't say anything <laughs> inappropriate. Yeah, you've got to be careful of what you're saying. It's um, This is the thing with commentating. If you model your words or if you get the wrong rider, it's out there. Yeah. And it's a small mistake, but somebody will be bound to pick it up. Does that um, worry you? Do you ever get worried about that? Um, I think you've just got to try not to let it worry you. I mean, even the pros make mistakes. And um, I remember I was told by a pro commentator once they got the um, the sponsor's name mixed up. The sponsors are in the wrong order. Oh and the next thing, some team principal comes out tearing a strip out of him because he got them the wrong way around. So where uh, people are very quick to pick up on the mistakes. Yes, and that's uh, think... the hours of work that's and dedication that goes into actually making it work. That's it. I mean, um, it's up with, for example, Murray Walker. It's he was very, very workmanlike and he worked very hard at it. But people always made a big deal out of the mistakes, which he kind of, in a way, he kind of embraced that almost, didn't he? Yeah, do, do you think as well that it sometimes you can only say as much as your brain can keep up with the action that's going on in front of you? Yeah, it's um, essentially, I think you just what you're there for is to try and convey the information across to the viewer or the person spectating at the track. So I don't think you should be star of the show as such, but you're just a, 
kind of a tool in effect to help somebody uh, get their enjoyment a bit more out of the racing. Absolutely. And to be fair, Chris, and I think I said this a couple of times at the end of last year, uh, being being in the hot zone with you, I've seen how challenging it really is. And I think you do a really, really good job. And I know that um, a lot of people appreciate the, the time that you've put in to, you know, to get um, more accustomed to the names, the people, the regulations, etc. I know it's, it's challenging, it's confusing for even the seasoned vets um, that do it. So, you know, a, a big thank you from, especially from everyone at BNB who I talk to who really value that. So, you know, don't think it goes unnoticed. Oh, thank you. It's, uh, it's appreciated because it, it is a bit of a difficult job at times. It's something different to what I normally do. Uh, I think sometimes as well, one of the um, the key things compared to motocross is, I know it sounds ridiculous, but the bikes are smaller, so it's harder to identify which bike's which sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll elaborate on that because in motocross, you've got big side panels on the side of the bike with the number on. That's and they're right. a lot more distinctive. Whereas I think in the mini bikes, you're a lot more reliant on uh, on numbers and leathers. And if somebody's got a fluorescent helmet, for example, it can make them very easy to stand out as an example. Or if they've got leathers with 189 on the back, that can be quite useful to pick out as well. <laughs> you're not really lying in, lying in the tyres somewhere. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I agree. You know, you, you rec- It's weird how, what makes you recognise someone by their style, by the way that they ride the bike, the helmet design, whatever it is. And, you know, especially at B&B, it wouldn't be the first time someone's got one number on the front and a different number on the side either or borrowed a bike to do a round or whatever. So, um, yeah, it doesn't make your life easy, I'm sure. It was a lot more difficult as well in the days before transponder timing because <laughs> you'd be reliant on, when I started motocross commentating, you'd be reliant on the event programme. And yeah, invariably, people would have different numbers and hadn't told the lap scorers. So you'd be like, well, there's a guy with number 20 on. I've got a clue who he is. <laughs> Well, at least, well, we try and make your life as easy as possible. But, I, you know, like I said, being in there, it, it is, it really is difficult. So, yeah, it's, um, it's well done to you and, and many more years of it. Um, we're looking forward to that. From, from your perspective, also, obviously, you're a big motorsport fan as well. Yeah, I enjoy my, uh, a lot of my car racing, especially the Formula One and a bit of Le Mans as well and IndyCar. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you the, the only subject that really matters in Formula One is the, the final result. What is your professional opinion on that? Oh, with the Formula One? Yes. Um, I'll say firstly, I'm a big Max fan. I like his aggression. I like how he approaches his racing. Yeah. Uh, I think there's something about the, the Dutch and the Belgian from a motocross side that attracts me to him as well, because he's from that area as well. Yeah, okay. Um, I think on balance, he probably deserved to win the title. And I think that Red Bull planned it well to get him on the good tyres to perhaps take that gamble as well. And it kind of worked in their favour at the end. Just a bit. Um, The cynic in me thought when they got him up with Lewis at the end, I thought this is a bit NASCAR really, isn't it? One lap showdown, it's too much for them to resist. That's just my, uh, I don't know if that's a professional viewpoint or just me being cynical. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wanted Max to win, but equally, I was gutted for Lewis because he was like on the cusp of history there. He would have been like statistically the the best driver ever. And, and do you think do you think he um do you think he gets the credit he deserves for his, his driving or not? Uh, I think Lewis does, yeah. Because oh, is this Lewis you mean? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, Lewis. Yeah, yeah. I think he does. I mean, it's it, it does annoy me 
I can take him or leave him, to be honest, but some of the stuff that gets written about him on social media, it's just rubbish, really. Yeah. I mean, if you cast your mind back to when he first signed for Mercedes, uh, people going, oh, he's only going for the money. They're pandering to his ego. How dare he leave McLaren and whatnot. But Nicky Lauda was there. And he had the vision that this car was going to be great. We needed a great driver to be the uh, the fulcrum, as it were. Yeah. So um, he's there for a reason. And people say, oh, I'll put him in the house at the back of the grid and see how he does then. And it's like, well, you know, sign Lionel Messi for Rochdale. We'll see how he gets on then. It's, <laughs> I think it's 80% about the car and perhaps 80, 90% the car and maybe a few percent the driver. Yeah. But it's that few percent that's very important. But how do and you I, what Russell will do next year? Uh, I think he'll uh, ruffle a few feathers, to be honest. It's almost a bit like when Lewis went to uh, McLaren at the beginning. Yeah. It's like people thinking, oh, he's going to sit there and be a good boy in the first year and learn the ropes, as it were. But he kind of uh, knocked Alonso's nose out of joint of it there. And I think Russell's got the potential to do the same to Lewis. Yes. But, I, I, um, too much research on the, the new cars. So, obviously, the, the t- a bit like the BMB with all the... Uh, new bikes and tricks and stuff that keep getting added um, that we see around the paddock. Um, Formula One's gone through a bit of an, an, a, a facelift as well. I think that's the curveball as well. We don't actually know what's going to be the best car. I mean, people say nowadays it's all about the car, but it's always been all about the car, even since it first began. But it's that few percent with the driver that makes it great. I mean, yeah. we lose we use Lewis as an example. He might be maybe 2% better than the worst driver on the grid. But it's that 2% that's the massive difference. Exactly. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how they cope. Uh, I think with Lewis as well, I think there is... We don't know what he's going to do yet, do we? But he, I think he's taking some downtime just composing his thoughts because I think it must be gutting for him. And I think he's got fresh motivation as well because he had the opportunity to be uh, the best driver of all time on the record books. That was effectively snatched away from him. Exactly. So I think he's got the motivation to come back and try and win that title back. So it'll be interesting next year. It's almost as gonna it's almost gonna be as exciting as uh, the British Mini Bar Championship. Um and uh you'll be there to commentate on it all. Now the, the last subject I want to talk to you about, um, and this is one that I'm quite excited about, is obviously we're gonna get you on a bike. Now we have tried, but we had monsoon weather and all sorts of things, but before the first round, I think it's April. Uh, before that lands, we will meet up and you will go. We will have a track day and you will go on the bike. Is that something you're looking forward to or dreading? I think it'll be quite good. I mean, it's something I've never done before. I've done a bit of karting. I do that as a bit of a hobby nowadays. Yeah. Uh, but I've never really ridden a bike on the road before. I've been on a friend's bike around a car park on a Yamaha 125. I think that's about it. And it felt a bit odd with the way the handlebars went on it. Yeah, and I've ridden a Honda CRF 150 before around the field as well, and that was actually good fun. But okay. it felt like two times too big for the bike, really. So um, I must admit that was quite a punchy bike to ride, actually, for its size. <laughs> and it's always interesting to watch them on the track. I think those I'm 85s the and the 150s of the Superminis—they're brilliant to watch in terms of how quick they are. Yeah, what a great championship, and it's potentially going to be one of the the busier classes next year as well. With seems that lot- way. Lots of different, uh, lots of CRFs, um, lots of 190 Daytona engines. Um, and obviously, you've still got the two strokes as well. So it's going to be a real mixed bag. But hopefully, the volume will be there for some real um, high-class racing. I think what I will say about me is don't laugh. Uh, <laughs> or in general, to anyone. 
<laughs> I think I'll be shocking. I've ridden a bike for a while either myself, to be honest. So don't laugh. And oh. um, I think everyone's going to be filming it so they can get 250 quid as well by sending it in. No, we, we would never <laughs> do that to you, don't worry. We, we'd only stick a GoPro on. It's fine. It's uh, not. I think, <laughs> joking aside, I think it'll be an interesting experience. Just hope for a, a dry day so I can just have a, a few laps and bed myself into it and just get an idea of what it's all about. Um, see, my experience. And it'll be interesting to see what it's like to actually ride these bikes as well. I'm not going to wear my helmet that I wear for karting. I haven't got the the nerve to wear that one. I think I'll just wear an old one. Yeah, you know, we'll we'll look after you. We'll, we'll make sure that um, it, it will at least give you some content to discuss in the downtime at, uh, at the the next round or the next rounds of BMB for sure. I think so. I mean, uh, I've I've driven one or two of the tracks that BMB race on. We went to. Uh, Glanagors a few years ago, I've raced there before and I've raced quite a few times at Wilton Mill on four wheels, so it'll be interesting to see what the transition's like between four and two wheels, I think Three Sisters is another one as well, Yeah. so uh, it'll be interesting to see what it's like a bit higher up on the bike and how it works on two wheels Yeah, well we'll, we'll, we'll arrange it we'll get it done, uh, we'll, we'll post a, a little video to uh, my racing page and tag you in as well I'm sure <laughs> with, with, with no incidents of course, and um, yeah that's good we'll make that happen, um, look it I suppose there's nothing else to say other than, again, thank you so much for all you do for British Mini Bikes. Um, yeah, keep it going. I'm, I'm looking forward to jumping in the booth um, when you'll have me in there between races, etc. again next year. And um, yeah, just just a big thank you. Great. And well, thanks to you, Dave. And I think thanks go out to Alan and Rich Energy and everyone who, uh, who makes it happen. Absolutely. So happy new year. We wish you well and uh, we'll catch up soon. Super, all the best, and I'll uh, I'll see you soon. Thanks, Chris. See you. Bye-bye. Yeah.